In football, when the offensive team determines that they don't have enough time or enough room to advance the ball across the first down line, uh, they might perform what is called a punt. Right? They punt the ball and they give it to the opposing team to do something with. Now, in real life, uh, when we use the expression to punt something, we mean that we are passing along a problem or an issue to someone else or down to another meeting later on down the future. You know, we don't have time to deal with this ourselves with this morning's meeting, so let's punt it to the next, or, you know, I'm not sure I can deal with this, I'll punt it to the guy on the shift next uh, up. Last week, Pastor Austin punted a great big fish in my direction. <laughs> he, he teased the identity of of this great fish in Jonah chapter 1 and uh, didn't quite solve anything with the fish but hinted at a couple of different possibilities and that's really where we're going to jump in this morning because now I have the ball and uh, we'll see what happens from there. We have been studying the book of Jonah. We have a couple of ushers that are happy to pass out Bibles if you need one. Uh, please raise your hand and take one. This is our gift to you if, you if you need a Bible to own, but we'd encourage you to have one open in front of you while we study the Word of God today. We took two weeks to work through Jonah chapter 1, and even then I felt like it was a lot to cover in two weeks. There's a whole lot there. Jonah is a man who is sent out on a great mission from a merciful God. His great mission was to go and preach against the Ninevites and call out against it. They were a wicked city. God tells Jonah, arise, go and call against Nineveh. Instead, Jonah arises and he goes down to Joppa and he rents out a boat and he goes down into the lower decks of the boat and God hurls a storm upon the sea, which eventually causes the sailors to grab Jonah and hurl him overboard into the sea. And we left off last week with the Lord appointing a great fish to swallow up Jonah and it says that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish. So Jonah 1.17, that's where we left off. And the question we always encounter at this point is, what kind of fish swallowed Jonah? How is it possible that a man can live for three days and three nights in the belly of any kind of animal, never mind a fish? Now the answer to those two questions are, we don't know, and we do know. Let's start with the we don't know answer and question. We don't know what kind of fish this was. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Uh, Pastor Austin wasn't really punting anything. All we know was that it was a great fish. That's what the Bible says. It was big. It was large enough to swallow a man and keep him alive in its stomach for three days and three nights. The Hebrew text just reads, great fish. It's not any kind of special word. In the Hebrew, it's just a word for fish. But the Greek translation of the Hebrew, called the Septuagint, it translates fish with the word sea monster. So the earliest interpreters of this text saw it as something more than just a, a normal fish in the water. So the question is, what kind of fish? Was it some kind of whale, maybe? Well, possibly. Sperm whales are known to swallow unusually large objects. I read of one account where they found a 15-foot shark in the belly of a sperm whale. So it's a possibility he could have swallowed a human. Was it a whale shark? You look at the, the mouth on this thing. 
There's an ancient story about a sailor who was swallowed by a whale shark, and then later, a couple hours later, the sailors caught the same shark, and they cut it open and found the sailor alive in the stomach. Now, that's an interesting story. Uh, Not sure it's a real story. Apparently, the story was later denied by the sailor's wife after he had passed. So it's interesting, maybe apocryphal, not so sure it happened. Well, as Pastor Austin mentioned last week, some people think maybe it was like a megalodon. Possibly, right? My official opinion is, I hope so. That would be pretty cool. I actually, I collect megalodon teeth, uh, so this is a cool possibility for me to think about. My wife and I, best date we've ever had, just this past summer, well, best date in my opinion, um, <laughs> we, we went digging for megalodon teeth in South Carolina. It was really, really cool. I don't know if she has the same opinion of that date as I do, but I thought it was cool. At the end of the day, though, we just, we don't know. We cannot be sure what kind of species this great fish was. Was it a whale? Was it a sea monster? Was it something else? We just don't know. But here's what we do know. We do know that this great fish was appointed by God. God appointed it. We'll see that word appointed again two weeks from now in chapter 4, but this fish was appointed by God for a specific purpose. That means this was not a random thing to happen to Jonah. He didn't happen to get swallowed by a great fish. This was part of God's plan. This was part of God's sovereign purpose. It was a miraculous provision by God for this prophet. So if you're wondering, how did Jonah survive in a fish's stomach for three days and three nights? The answer is God. That's it. We don't need to look for naturalistic explanations for something miraculous. It probably defies a natural explanation. God provided a great fish. God provided a means for Jonah to live in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. And and if you believe that the God who made the heavens and the earth from nothing exists, this is not too far of a stretch for us to also say God can certainly provide in this way. He can miraculously sustain a life if he can create a life even from the dust of the earth. Now the focus of our morning is what is probably, in my opinion, the least studied chapter of the book of Jonah. Most of you probably didn't even know this chapter existed up until this point right here. This is the chapter that we kind of skip over when we're telling the story of Jonah because it's a chapter of poetry. It's a poem in the midst of narrative. It's a song. But this song, this poem, this prayer is going to reveal not just a lot about Jonah, But it's going to reveal, I believe, even more about God. Remember, God is the main character in the book of Jonah. So here's our strategy this morning. We're going to work through the song verse by verse, make sure we have a clear understanding of what Jonah is praying. Then I'm going to step back and look at it as a whole, and I'm going to share something that might change our perspective of this poem. And then... I'm going to say something about what I just said that might change our views again about our perspective on the poem. And then finally, the last step will be we'll wrap it up with some very practical application and send you packing into the beautiful weather of Sunday afternoon. So let's begin at the top of chapter 2. The prayer of Jonah is introduced with this verse. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And before we get to the actual prayer, there are a few features of that verse that I want to highlight. I think it 
commands our attention here. Maybe you notice that little pronoun in there, that Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. That's a good sign, isn't it? The Lord, his God. Jonah is claiming the Lord is his God. In fact, it uses the, the word Lord, all capital letters there, which is a translation of the personal name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Jonah is claiming Yahweh is my God, and I'm going to pray to him. Remember in chapter 1, the sailors begin by crying out to all their various gods. They're polytheists. They're, they're praying to all these different gods. And, and then when they encounter the power of Yahweh, the one true God, they all convert and end up fearing him rather than fearing everything else. Well, Jonah prays to the Lord, his God. That's a good sign to start with. Now, second, I want you to notice the word then. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Then when? Well, then comes right after verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17 said that Jonah was in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, and then he prayed to the Lord. That sequence is very important. Jonah is a stubborn, stubborn man. He is a stubborn man. Three days and three nights in the belly of a fish before he begins to pray. That's how the text reads. That's a sequence of events in the text here. Men, I know some of you are stubborn, stubborn men. You don't talk to your wife for three days and three nights when you're mad at her. She has no idea you're even mad at her, and you're stubborn and in your, in your anger. You haven't talked to that friend of yours in two years because of that thing he said way back when. You can't even remember what that thing was, but you know that you're supposed to be mad at him. We are stubborn, aren't we? We know stubbornness, but this is the height of stubbornness right here. Jonah sits in the fish's gut for three full days before finally turning to the Lord and begging for help. Wow. He would rather die a slow, terrible death than submit to God's mission for his life. But trials in life have a way of softening us to the Lord, don't they? Working at us and picking at us until we finally submit. We're either going to harden or we're going to soften when, when we find trials in our life bearing down upon us. Jonah appears eventually to soften, but only after a couple of days of marination. Now, third thing I want to point out, and before we move on to the, the actual song or prayer here, <clears throat> this is a little fun tidbit that you don't necessarily see in the English translation. I shared this with my Hebrew class this week, and they said, you have to share this in church on Sunday. So I said, all right, I'll share it. This great fish has been mentioned three times now in this text. Twice in verse 17, once here in verse 1. The first two times the, the fish is mentioned in verse 17, it's a masculine noun used for the fish. Hebrew nouns can be masculine, they can be feminine in form. Verse 17, the fish is written in this masculine form. But here in verse 1 of chapter 2, the text switches to a feminine form of the Hebrew noun. This is a little odd. Some interpreters look at this and they, they think this is evidence the book was written by two different authors. And I don't think there's really any evidence of that. But personally, I think the author is kind of playing with us a little bit. After Jonah is swallowed, the fish is pregnant with him. And now we begin to talk about the fish as a female. So just some fun Bible facts for you. I, I thought that was kind of curious and interesting and wanted to share that. You don't always see some of these things in, in our translations, but let's listen into the belly of this fish and hear what Jonah has to pray. 
verse 2. He said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, it's important to keep in mind, this is the prayer that Jonah prays in the belly of this fish, and this first verse almost sounds like he's referring to his distress in that belly. And yet, the very next verse we're going to see tells us that what he's talking about is the distress of drowning in the sea, not the distress of the fish itself. So while he's in the fish's belly, he's reflecting back on this near-death experience while he cried out to God while he was drowning after the sailors tossed him overboard. And God, he says, heard my voice and saved me. Now, how did, how did God save him? He's drowning in the sea. All these waves are tossing over him. How did God save him? By the fish, by providing this great fish to swallow him. I just want you to think about that for a moment. When you ask the Lord to help you with something, what kind of salvation are you looking for? I mean, if you're in financial trouble, save me, O Lord, I'm drowning in debt, what are you hoping from God? If you're in some sort of physical danger, save me, O Lord, I'm in danger, what do you expect God to do? Well, God provides for his people, we know that biblically, but he doesn't always provide in the way that we might imagine he would provide or in the most comfortable way that we would imagine. Sometimes he provides a great fish to swallow us and humble us. That's what we need most. Sometimes he provides a more comfortable way of salvation. But God always provides exactly what we need in our lives, whether it's comfortable or not. Jonah is sinking, he's drowning, he cries out to God, Lord help me, and God answers his prayer. Jonah says, out of the belly of, not the fish, but out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is a term for the grave or sometimes even for the afterlife in the Old Testament. In other words, Jonah is saying, I was a dead man. I, was, I, was, I had one foot in the grave, Lord. I was laying down in my casket. I was at death's door from hospice. I called to you, God, and you answered. The next verse might catch your attention as well. Look at verse 3. Notice his language here. He says, for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Notice that language. For you cast me into the deep. You did it, God. Yet when you read Jonah 1, who actually cast him into the deep? Yeah, the sailors were the ones that hurled Jonah into the sea, and it was only after him saying, please hurl me into the sea, did they do it only after great hesitation. And yet here he says, you, God, you cast me into the sea. Your waves and billows crashed over me. Now there is a sense in which he is right. God is absolutely sovereign. This book is going to make it clear that God does as he desires. He controls all things. Already in this book, we've seen God control the sea. We've seen God control the ship. We've seen God control the fish. So in a sense, yes, God cast Jonah into the sea. He is sovereign. God only knew that this would happen, but God orchestrated the events so that it would happen. And yet, it still sounds a bit odd, doesn't it, to blame God in this way. You cast me into the sea, God. We're going to come back to this thought in a few minutes. I just want you to remember that for now. Jonah describes the waves and the billows overwhelming him. He's drowning. He describes it like a flood surrounding him on all sides. And then he says in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. 
Now this should really catch our attention. Maybe not in the best way. Notice carefully how Jonah says this. He says, I am driven away from your sight. That's kind of a strange way of putting it, especially if we've been following along since the first couple verses of this book. That's like when my students might say, you failed me. Well, you failed, yes. You didn't study for your exams. You didn't do your papers, and you didn't come to class. But I failed you, (laughs) apparently. Jonah says, I am driven away from your sight. He uses a, a past tense there, and the way he says it, it implies that somebody was doing the driving. And that somebody, I would assume, would be God. It's a passive verb. God, you've driven me away from your sight. But remember how this book started? God gives Jonah the mission, get up, go to Tarshish, or go to to Nineveh, and and yet Jonah arose and he went to flee to Tarshish. Remember what the word said? From the presence of the Lord. And then again in verse 3, at the very end of verse 3, so he paid the fare, he went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is blaming God even though he's suffering the consequences of his own actions. He fled from God's presence, which probably refers to God's special presence in Jerusalem, in the temple. He fled from God's presence, and now he's saying, God, you have driven me away from your presence. Something, pardon the pun, is a little fishy here. But Jonah is convinced he's going to return to Jerusalem. He knows God has provided this great fish for a reason. He's alive for a reason. I'm going to look again upon your holy temple, he says to God. I am going to Go back to Jerusalem, and I will look again to worship you at your holy temple. Now, this is also a bit funny to me, because God was not calling Jonah to Jerusalem, was he? God was calling him out of Jerusalem. He was calling him 500 miles away to the northeast, to Nineveh. There was no promise of God that he's going to see the holy temple again, and yet, Jonah, his sights are still remaining in Israel. Jonah goes on to describe the terror of his experience, verses 5 and 6. He said, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Now I want us to remember this is poetry. Poetry works a little bit different than narrative does. When Jonah says that seaweed was wrapped around his head and that he descended down to the roots of the mountains, I don't think this means he literally reached the bottom of the ocean floor before the big fish came and swallowed him. I don't know that this literally means that seaweed was wrapped around his head and he was drowning in that way. Uh, The Mediterranean Sea has an average depth of about 5,000 feet. At, At its deepest point, it's over three times that depth. A human being would be crushed if they went to the bottom of that sea. So this is Jonah poetically describing the peril that he's encountering, that he's facing. He is about to die. The bars of the land closed in on him, meaning that that he's in a watery prison. They've shut the gates, they've turned the key, and they've thrown it away. He should have been dead. Notice how Jonah continues the descent language in these verses here. Remember, God told him, arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah arose, and the text said he went down to Joppa. He went down to the belly of the ship. And now he uses that same verb here in verse 6. He went down to the bottom of the ocean. He is at his lowest point geographically and spiritually. He keeps going down, down, down. He calls it the pit. 
which is another word for the grave, for Sheol. He was as good as dead, and yet God gave him life. Doesn't that resonate with us Christians? We'll come back to that thought too. Let's look at verse 7. He says, when my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now this verse, I think, would hopefully resonate with us as well. When do we tend to cry out to God? When our life is fainting away, when we are in peril, when we need something, when we're in trouble, we cry out to God. In times of peace and prosperity, sometimes we end up forgetting God, don't we? We don't feel like we need him. We don't remember how great our need is for the Lord. But there's something about trials and difficulties and even times of near death which cause us to cry out to God unlike any other time in our lives. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is part of the purpose that God has for trials and difficulties in your life. He uses them to get your attention, to draw you back to himself. Maybe it's the the pain of going through an ugly divorce that brought you back to God. Maybe it's the pain of a miscarriage. Maybe it's that you got laid off at work or you find yourself with an unexpected adversary in your life or maybe you're facing a sudden health crisis that you didn't foresee coming. God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. In times of peril, don't run away from him. Run towards him because God hears your prayers. Jonah is at the lowest point of his life in the belly of a great fish and he's praying and he says, God, all the way in Jerusalem, you heard my prayers in your holy temple. I prayed to you, and I was heard. That's the God that we worship as well. That's the God that we serve. God hears your prayers. So Jonah reflects on this near-death experience. He's drowning in the raging seas. He cries out to God. God delivers him by providing this great fish. And then in verse 8, he says something unexpected. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, at first glance, this, this verse might seem a little out of place, doesn't it? Jonah's praying for his own deliverance, help me, help me, and then the next thing you know, he's talking about people who worship idols. What, what's the connection here? Well, I think what's going on here is he's contrasting his worship of God with the way that unbelievers worship idols. Jonah's God delivered him. Jonah's God is a real God. Idol worshipers miss out on the wonderful, steadfast love of the Lord because they're worshiping things that don't really exist. They lose all their hope of ever experiencing true covenantal love from God because they are worshiping gods that don't exist. In fact, Jonah uses two words here, uh, translated in the ESV, vain idols. You can literally translate that Hebrew phrase, worthlessnesses of nothingness. You could see why they might have Translated it, you know, vain idols, because uh, worthlessnesses of nothingness is a little bit of a mouthful here. What he's calling these idols, he's using these terms to call these idols kind of a derogatory term. Uh, they're little nothings. They aren't really gods. They're not really real. They don't show true love. They can't actually deliver. You can call out to an idol all day long, and it's going to sit on your mantle and do nothing for you. They're worthlessnesses of nothings. The sailors on the ship, remember them? They're calling out to all their gods for help, but when did the sea stop raging? Not when they're calling on their gods. Their gods didn't help because their gods are false. They are worthlessnesses of nothings. 
Jonah points out that it doesn't do you any good to worship things that aren't real. But we ought to worship Yahweh God, the one true God, in order to enjoy true love from him. He makes this contrast between the idol worshipers, between the way that he worships in verse 9, and then he continues that in verse 9, and he says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice those opening words there, but I. Those idol worshipers, they sacrifice to worthlessnesses of nothings. But I, I will sacrifice to to the one true God with the voice of thanksgiving. Jonah anticipates getting back to Jerusalem once again. He believes he's going to leave the belly of this great fish. He's made vows to the Lord. He's made promises. And he believes that God is going to allow him release that he might go back to Jerusalem and continue his life worshiping the Lord there. You ever do something like this when you're in trouble? Lord, if you will just get me out of this this one last time, I promise I will go to church every Sunday. I promise I will tithe faithfully. I promise I'll get involved. Like, you you make these promises to God when you're in trouble. You know how this goes. Jonah makes vows to the Lord. I promise I'm going to sacrifice to you if I can can only get out of this mess, if I can survive this storm, if I can get out of this fish's gut. Now, some of this might also strike you as odd. It did for me this week as I was thinking about this. Didn't Jonah ask to be thrown overboard? Right? I mean, it was like a death wish for Jonah. He, he wanted death. Throw me overboard. He's wishing for death. He's staring death in the face then, and then he's realizing, okay, maybe I don't really want this. Maybe I don't really want to run from God like this. Seems to me that he might have had second thoughts upon getting a mouthful of salt water. But nevertheless, Jonah sums up this chapter really well in that last line. This is really one of the summary verses of this book salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the theme of this chapter. That's the theme of this book in many ways. Salvation belongs to the Lord. True salvation only comes from him. And indeed, miraculously, that's exactly what we see here in the text. Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Ew. There are a couple of uh, really old Jewish legends that says that the fish shot Jonah out and landed him in Nineveh. Like 500 miles away, he goes like flying and plops right down on dry land. Now that's kind of a cool thought, right? Not quite sure that's what the text means for us to understand. The fish probably barfs Jonah up onto the dry land of Israel. We're going to see next week the Lord renews his great mission to the reluctant prophet. But notice here how the text just says the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke to the fish. That's Genesis 1 language there, isn't it? The Lord spoke light into existence. The Lord spoke the fish into existence. And now his word commands this great fish to do exactly as he desires. Have you noticed that everything in this text obeys God better than Jonah? Everything in this book. The, the wind and the sea obey God. The the fish obeys God, the sailors obey God, all except for Jonah. He's the only anomaly in the whole thing. But let's take a step back now and think about this prayer as a whole for a moment. What have we seen so far? More specifically, here's what I want to ask. Two questions. What do we learn about Jonah? And what do we learn about God? 
We saw a man who thought he was going to die. He cries out to God, and God delivers him. He makes vows to God. He makes promises. I'm going to worship you. If you deliver me, I'll go back to Jerusalem. It'll be all great, God. But we've also seen hints along the way that maybe there are still some things fundamentally wrong with this prophet's perspective. You, God, have driven me from your sight. You have cast me into this deep. What's missing from this prayer? What did you notice was missing? Yeah, if I'm hearing some of you correctly, repentance. Many people have pointed out that this prayer lacks any kind of confession of wrongdoing or sin or disobedience. Sorry for running, God. Sorry for disobeying, God. I'm a sinner in need of help, God. Total silence in that regard, right? What do we learn about God? Well, God is a God who answers prayers. God is a God who hears, he responds, he saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. People who worship idols, they worship nothings, worthlessnesses of nothings. People who worship God receive steadfast love from God. God is a God who saves. Now, I told you I'm going to share a couple things about this text that, that might change our opinions one way or the other. Uh, some things that are a little bit deeper than what's going on in the immediate surface. Well, what are they? Well, here's what I want to tell you first. Nearly every line of this prayer is a direct quote or adaptation from a line from one of the Psalms. Almost every single line. Jonah prays scripture. Every line is picked up, plucked from the Psalms, and incorporated into this prayer. He knows scripture so well that he can pray it back to God. All the lines are lifted from different Psalms. Let me show you a few examples of this. I'll put these on the screen for you. So Jonah's prayer started off in verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Well, that first line of the psalm is almost an exact quote of the first line from Psalm 120. A song of ascents. In my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. You can see the relationship there, right? Let me show you another example. Uh, Jonah's prayer borrows twice from Psalm 31. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Psalm 31, verse 22, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. Now, the Hebrew there actually matches quite a bit more closely than the English translations. It's almost exact word for word. Verse 8 in chapter 2 of Jonah, those who pay regard to vain idols. He uses this phrase, those who pay regard to vain idols. That's a phrase that's lifted exactly from Psalm 31, verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I'm just showing you a couple examples. I could show you examples for each and every verse of Jonah chapter 2 that look exactly like this on the, on the board. Nearly every line from Jonah borrows or adapts a line from the psalm. Now, how does that change our view of this poem? How does that change our view of Jonah? If you were with us in our series of Ezra Nehemiah way back when, about a year ago, you might remember that we saw a few examples of this kind of thing there too. Remember Ezra chapter 9 Ezra prays scripture back to God. Remember Nehemiah 9, the people pray scripture back to God. Godly people pray scripture. Godly prayers use the Bible to direct and inform their prayers. We see this kind of thing all over the Bible. Daniel prays scripture. Ezra prays scripture. Mary prays scripture. All over the Bible we see this kind of thing. Godly people pray scripture. 
So perhaps this helps put some things into perspective for us, right? For this reluctant prophet. This guy knows the Bible. He is not ignorant. He's not a stupid prophet. He's not unintelligent. He can pray scripture back to God with the most godly people that you know. Which means in chapter 1, he knew exactly what or who he's running from. He knows what he's doing. He knows the Bible. So perhaps this is kind of a turning point for Jonah. Even though the prayer lacks this this clear confession of wrongdoing, perhaps the scripture-saturated prayer might kind of soften us up a bit to him. He knows the word of God, and he's using it to inform what he's praying. But here's the second thing. Here's what might help us reconsider our reconsideration. You may, I got to tell you too, you, you may or may not agree with me on this point, and that's, that's okay. We can agree to disagree perhaps and hopefully walk out of here brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want to preach what I see in the text, and I'm going to share with you what I see in the text. Even though Jonah's prayer is saturated with Scripture, nearly every psalm that he borrows from is coming from a perspective of someone being unjustly treated or unjustly suffering and asking God for help. In other words, these psalms are all about righteous people suffering unjustly for no fault of their own. All the psalms that he's using here. Let me show you a couple examples of this. I mentioned that verse 2 borrows from the first line of Psalm 120. You know what the second line of Psalm 120 says? It says this, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. And the psalmist isn't talking about his lying lips or deceitful tongue. He's talking about other people. The psalmist in Psalm 120 is a righteous man who is suffering because of unrighteous people. The psalmist wants deliverance because he believes his trials are unfair. I told you verses 4 and verse 8 borrow from Psalm 31. Here's another verse from Psalm 31 that represents the perspective of the psalmist. He says, Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. The psalmist is a righteous servant of God, suffering unjustly. And so on, again, throughout the rest of this prayer in Jonah, he's borrowing from psalms that come from this kind of perspective. Well, what are you saying, Pastor Brian? I'm saying Jonah's misapplying the psalms. He's what we would call quoting out of context. Is Jonah a righteous man who is suffering unfairly? No. I mean, I think we could all agree on that. He brought every bit of suffering in this book upon himself. He disobeyed God. He fled from the presence of God. He asked to be thrown into the ocean. And then he prays from the belly of this great fish, and his prayer takes these sound bites from the Psalms all about needing rescue when we are unjustly or unfairly treated. So here's what I'm saying. I think at best, he's using verses out of context. At worst, this is a man who is really deceived enough in his own thinking to think that this really applies to him. When I started to think about the background of these verses, the background of these psalms, the transition from chapters 1 to 2 to 3 in Jonah makes a little bit more sense. Here's a light spoiler for you. Jonah gets to Nineveh in chapter 3, but as we're going to see next week, he does the bare minimum. He goes, but there's some evidence that maybe his attitude didn't quite change as much as we would hope. 
In chapter 4, he's even worse. He sits down and waits for the Ninevites to die. So Jonah 1 shows Jonah in a negative light. Jonah 3, I think, hints towards that. And Jonah 4 most certainly shows him in a negative light. Is Jonah 2 the only exception? Or, if we consider the way he's using these psalms, does chapter 2 also reveal the hypocritical heart of this prophet? Now, I'm going to leave that for you to decide. I'm sharing my conclusions from the text, and I'll let you wrestle with that. But here's what I think will help us as we apply this and think on this. I don't want us to ask, as we leave here today, what does this reveal about Jonah's heart? I think that's a secondary question. That's an important question, but that's a secondary question. What I want us to leave here asking ourselves is what does this reveal about the character of God? Let's imagine just for a moment that I'm right about what I'm sharing. Just just imagine for now, whether you agree with me or not. Jonah misapplies the Psalms. He's praying from the perspective of a hypocritical prophet still thinking that he's a victim. Here's the radical next step to that. God still saves him. God still saves him. God is a God of great mercy. He still delivers him from this great fish and from drowning. That means that his mercy doesn't just extend to the pagan sailors or to the pagan Ninevites. It extends to rebellious, hypocritical believers as well. Jonah's prayer, I think no matter which way you cut it, isn't perfect. Even if you don't agree with my conclusions on the Psalms, you probably recognize there are some difficulties with this prayer. He doesn't repent, he doesn't confess his sin, and yet God still hears. Even through Jonah's imperfections, God still hears and God still saves. Church, that's the gospel. That's how the gospel works. God hears and God saves even in our sin. God saves sinners. You know what the Bible says? Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were in the belly of Sheol, Christ died for us. That's the message of the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice that God does not demand that Jonah clean off all the fish juices and then come to him. God doesn't demand that Jonah's prayer is perfect. God recognizes that Jonah sitting in the slop of his sin at the lowest point of his life, as Jonah cries out to the Lord, God answers not because of Jonah, but because of his great grace and mercy and love. That's our God. That's what he does. Our prayers come to him in his holy temple, even when we are in the belly of Sheol, even when when we are still wrestling with our sin, God hears our voice. God is merciful. And what is mercy, by the way, other than withholding punishment that we deserve? God is gracious. And what is grace, by the way, other than giving us blessing that we haven't earned? What we need to realize, as I said last two weeks ago, I guess by now, and as I'll probably end up saying again, we are all little Jonas. This is us. We're no better than this prophet. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We come to the cross with a recognition of our sin and our need for a Savior. We don't don't come with perfect prayers. We don't come absent of any hypocrisy. We don't come without sin. 
God takes our feeble promises that he knows we're not going to keep and our offerings, and he shows us mercy and grace and steadfast love. Some of you may need to stop and think this morning about your own lives. You've been trying to clean yourself up in order to come to God. Please recognize that God is ready for you now. If God can listen to the prayers of Jonah, God can listen to the prayers of the little Jonas that are sitting in front of me and the Jonah that's preaching from this pulpit. That's the God that we serve. Call upon the Lord for your salvation. Confess your sin to him. Ask him to come and forgive you, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And the Bible says you will be saved. So church, may our prayers reflect a recognition of our sinfulness. As we come before the Lord, may our posture before God be one of a great need for a Savior. Not here's how much I can give for you, God, but here's what you have done for me. May we realize that God hears our prayers when we cry out to him and God answers, even while we're in our sin. And may we leave here confessing salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are great sinners in need of a Savior. We are in the belly of Sheol. We cry out in our distress, in our sinfulness, in our hypocrisy, and we need you, God. But we recognize that salvation belongs to the Lord. We recognize that Jesus Christ died and rose again for our sins, as we've sung about this morning. So, Lord, we cry out to you now. And I pray that as we leave, we will reflect on the greatness of this gospel that we would not wallow in our sin, in stubbornness, but Lord, that we would humbly come before you and that you would restore us to yourself. To you belong salvation, God. To you belong grace and mercy and steadfast love. And it's to you that we pray these prayers and worship you, knowing that you're going to hear in your holy temple. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great week.